If you would this morning, open your Bibles to the first letter of the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians. And I know for some of our regulars that have been here a long time, we've visited this letter not that long ago, but it's really important uh, that we look at it again. Uh, last week, speaking about the day of Pentecost, I know I was late, but as you know, I was occupied on the day of Pentecost. Um, I noticed there were a couple of issues that were a part of that discussion, but not the main issue. Um, we talked about the question of spiritual manifestations, and I stressed last week that isn't the main point of the day of Pentecost. It is what? It is the Spirit of God coming to dwell inside of His people, both individually and collectively. That's the radical change, right? Not that the manifestations don't need to be addressed, but that's not the main point. The main point is that radical change where God came to dwell inside His people, inside His church. Completely different. Okay. The second thing I noted as a, as a, as a parallel question, if we can use that phrase, was the question of women in ministry. How Peter's use of the Joel prophecy, and it will come about in those days, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters will prophesy. How that points to the opening of ministry for both men and women in the public arena, how that's a significant change, um, and how that is because of the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I understand the idea of women in ministry is not something that's universally accepted in the church. Very sincere, honest people will disagree about that. Um, but that is another issue that we can address. Now, we can talk about these issues a couple different ways. Typically, when we raise issues like this in the church, the way it, what it looks like is the person on one side, they get all their verses and they stick them in their spiritual six gun, right? And then they holster it. And then the people on this side of the issue, they get all their verses and they stick them in their spiritual and then they holster it. And then they meet in the street at noon, right? And when the smoke is cleared, what has been accomplished? Nothing right? Nothing. It's just a lot of noise and smoke, right? There is a bit, the reason that nothing is accomplished, the reason that nothing is accomplished is that when we handle scripture that way, we pull all the verses out and stick them in, is that the whole idea of context and what is going on, it, it's just out the window. No consideration at all. Years ago, I was, I was having a really serious discussion about a very sincere believer on one of these issues, and he had his, had his verses. Boom! And he had Two verses that were just like linked, and those two verses together just made his point rock solid. The problem is those two verses, which were like this, were in two different paragraphs. Now, we don't preach the paragraphs, okay? But if the context shows two verses that just happen to be one after the other, if they're talking about entirely different subjects, they're talking about entirely different subjects, okay? Let's be honest. And so... That was just a classic example where I got sucked into an old, you know, gun battle that didn't accomplish anything. There's a better way. It takes more time, but it's a better way. And that is to look at an entire book of Scripture that addresses these issues and look at those issues in the flow of the discussion of the text. We get a lot better appraisal of truth that way. And so as it is, both of the issues that were raised in last week's message, and the whole issue of Pentecost happened to be addressed 
in the Corinthian letters. And so we're going to look at the Corinthian letters because it addresses both of these issues and, and we're going to spend some time on it, primarily 1 Corinthians. Uh, we're going to look at what is said in the letter about the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in the church. Um, we're going to look at what is said about the issue of women in public ministry. And we're also going to look, because it's irresponsible to ignore the many other issues that these letters speak to about our world. So before we go any farther, let's look to the text. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we're going to read the first nine verses. Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is in Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, who with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you in Christ Jesus that in everything you were enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you're not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Father, thank You for Your Word. Open our minds and hearts to it. Um, before we get any farther, I want to talk a little bit more about that third reason we want to look at the letter. The first was the issue of manifestation. The second issue was women in ministry. And then that third issue, all the other ways the Corinthian letter speaks to us. I think you will find, if you haven't read Corinthians before or haven't read it recently, I strongly encourage you to read it again because you will find as you read, as you're going through the text, you will go, wow, sounds like he's talking to us. You know, these guys were a lot like us. There are incredible parallels uh, based on the cultural setting of the church in Corinth. And you know, one thing we don't always think about, but certainly is true, is that every church is a reflection of the culture it's drawn from. The issues in that culture become the issues of the church. The strengths of that culture become the strengths of the church. Our churches always, just the nature of things, reflect the world they come from. And when you look at Corinth, in many ways you're looking at us, right? So let's, before we get started, take just a couple of minutes to talk about Corinth. It's really essential to do this. Um, as Corinth, as Paul came to it in his second missionary journey, Acts chapter 18, uh, middle, late part of the first century, uh, was a brand new city. It was less than 100 years old. And in, in antiquity, that meant the paint hadn't even dried yet. I mean, it was, a brand, it was a brand new city. Even though it was an ancient city, its history goes back to more than 3000 BC, it had long been a very powerful city. During the heyday of the Greek city-states, Corinth was, was a rival to both Athens and Sparta. It was, it was really important. Um, but it had, well, we'll get into why it hadn't been occupied for a hundred years, but when we talk about Corinth, um, this is a place that especially those who may be involved in real estate can appreciate. Because when you talk about Corinth, what, what would any real estate agent tell you are the three most important things about any piece of property? Location, location, location. That's Corinth, right? We talk about Corinth, we're talking about location. So if you put up the first map, 
And if anywhere, I don't know how you feel about Bible maps. Some people think they're great. Some like, I'm just confused. If anywhere in Scripture, we, we understand better by looking at the map. It's Corinth. This is a picture of, as you can obviously see, the Roman Empire. Um, there is a slight flaw in it, and that is that Greece is not in the exact center where it should be. Sorry, but I couldn't find a map that was accurate. What you will notice, what you'll notice if you look at this map, is if you want to travel between Rome and anywhere to the east, like Asia, which is where most commerce was, uh, other than and Spain is really starting to develop its olive industry, and that's really taken off, but for the most part, commerce goes from Rome east, ancient Persia, Iran, that area. If you want to go from Italy, Rome, to Asia, you have three choices how you can do this, right? Let's say you're a, a Persian rug merchant in Rome, and you sell Persian rugs to the upper echelons of Roman society, right? you got to go get some Persian rugs. So what do you do? You get your bag of silver, your bag of gold, and you head for Asia, right? you got three ways you can travel. You can go all the way to the north of Italy and then go over through what we would call the Balkan states today, none of that area is fun, right? Because the minute you get to northern Italy, you're into the Julian Alps and it gets rough, just geographically. The minute you get into the Balkan states, I know this sounds bigoted, but the Balkan states, as a rule, have not been fun places to be. They just have a history of being rough places to be. Um, not always, but for most of history. So you've got to go through this fairly rough area of the Balkans. Then you get to the Bosphorus. You really can't see it there. It's a little break in the land. You have to cross over to get to Asia, and you finally made it. It was slow. It was dangerous. It was expensive. Doable, but not your first choice. Second choice, you can go from Italy by ship all the way. Just go south of Greece, and then, you're, boom, you're in Asia, right? Not as simple as it looks. For the simple reason that as you travel by ship from Italy, south of Greece, you got to swing way down. You see that part of Greece that sticks down into the Mediterranean, those fingers that stick down, okay? The southern end of the Peloponnese Peninsula. That is an area called Morea. Child of the Morea. That's what the name means, right? These are my people, right? Yeah. Well, where those fingers stick down, that is nothing but coves and bays and little places you can tuck into. Think pirate. Yeah, my people, right? Yeah. The, by the way, the English word pirates comes from the Greek word pirates. Okay, so there was a lot of pirates in that area. Now, if you're a Roman warship, you don't care, right? But if you're a merchant ship and you got a bag of coin because you're going to go buy a bunch of rugs, you don't want to go there, right? So you have to swing way south around that, which is very inconvenient. And by the way, Crete's not much better. Um, so you, you, you can do that, or you can take option number three. Option number three. And this is something that goes all the way back to the 7th century BC, by the way. Option number three. You leave Italy and you head straight for Greece. Now go to the second map. You can see it on this map, but you can see it even better here. When you get to Greece, right where it says Patra, you see that body of water that cuts all the way through Greece? That's called the Gulf of Corinth. You can go all the way through the Gulf of Corinth, and then at Corinth, you come to the Isthmus of Corinth. And if you've been to Greece, you've seen this. It's a strip of land less than 10 miles wide at, at its highest points, only 300 feet high. 
and it is really easy because they had paved the road going all the way back to the 7th century. They had a stone paved road. You can either, if you have a small ship, just put it on logs and roll it over the thing, or if you have a big ship, you unload the cargo, cart it over, and then put it on the different ship. All right? Very easy to do. And this is the preferred way of carrying anything from value east to west. It's faster, it's safer, and it's cheaper. Right? It also puts whatever city is sitting on that isthmus in an incredibly powerful position. That is why Corinth was able, through antiquity, even to challenge Atha and Sparta, because they had the money. Corinth was one rich city and had a long history. But in the middle of the second century, they made a mistake, one of Rome's many wars. You can take the map down. Thanks, Aaron. Uh, Alex, I appreciate that. Uh, in one of Rome's many wars, they picked the wrong side. They didn't pick Rome. And so after Rome won that war, they came to Corinth. We said, we want to show you how much we appreciate not supporting us in the war, and they leveled the city. They deported everybody. There was nothing there. But within 100 years, Rome had figured out that was a mistake. We've got to have a city there because we've got to use the isthmus. So Rome came back in 42 B.C. and rebuilt the entire city at their expense, repopulated it with people that would be friendly to them, like retired Roman soldiers. So the city that Paul comes to is only about 100 years old, but it has exploded. It has grown like crazy. And it is incredibly rich. It's one of the wealthiest, though only 100 years old, one of the wealthiest cities in the entire empire. Ro Corinth was, it was huge, right? Not only is it incredibly wealthy, it is incredibly cosmopolitan. It literally is where east meets west. Remember, the whole point of it being there is commerce going east and west. And if you have a large ship, one ship stops, unloads its cargo, cross the isthmus into another ship. It is literally where east meets west. So you've got Roman population, like all the Roman soldiers that are retired and are living there. You have the resident Greek population that moves in. You have a population from the east that moves in. Incredible mixture, syncretism of philosophy and worldview and religion. In the ruins of Corinth, you can find a temple to every single Roman god you can find a temple to every single Greek god. The biggest of the temples was to the goddess Epaphrodite, and you can imagine where that goes. And we'll talk more about that. So it was incredibly cosmopolitan. Every worldview you could imagine could be found in Corinth. They've even recently discovered cells up in what they call the Acrocorinth, the big hill that looks over Corinth, um, of when they mean cells, they mean small caves where practitioners of um, sorcery met, the black arts. So even that found its place in Corinth. All of this is going on, right? And when I say port city, what do you think of on the moral scale? Port cities, as a rule, tend to come in down low. Well, Corinth is two ports with a city in the middle, right? In the first century, to tell someone you're acting like a Corinthian, this is to tell them that their morals are unacceptable, and that's by first century standards, which are already pretty low. To Corinthize something meant to corrupt it, 
It's a city known for its immorality, right? Why do I say all this? Who are we? Who are we? New country. Rich beyond measure. Very cosmopolitan. Anything you want, you can find. Whether it's a worldview or an idea or some expression of sin, it's available. You read about Corinth, you're reading about us, right? It's important to understand that because it's important to understand how relevant this is to us. And then as we look at the Roman I look at the Corinthian letters, there's one more detail. I always say about the last because it's, it's, I think it's the most interesting. We have to be mindful of this, and I know some of you already know this. When we talk about first and second Corinthians, we're actually talking about second and fourth. Because there's at least one, probably two letters that are missing. Right? In 1 Corinthians 5.9, Paul writes, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I wrote to you in my letter. What letter? The letter before 1 Corinthians. So there was at least one letter that Paul wrote before 1 Corinthians that we don't have. So what we call first is actually second. And then you get into 2 Corinthians, you find a reference to a letter that doesn't refer to anything in 1 Corinthians, which implies there was another one in the middle. These two letters are missing. Now, you may wonder, well, why did God do that? When you see him, ask him. We don't know. We do not know why in the economy of God those letters don't exist, but they don't, right? Not only that, not only that, but you've got the statement in 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, just after where we stopped reading, where Paul says, I have been informed concerning you. What's that mean? Not only do you have a letter from Paul to the Corinthians, which we don't have, you have some kind of communication from Corinth to Paul that we don't have. Right? So what's happening in this letter? Well, first off, we're stepping into the middle of a conversation, quite literally. And we've probably all had that experience, you know, at somebody's house at a party or something, two people are talking, and you walk up, and they're already going, and what's the first thing you have to do? If you have a brain in your head at all, you close the mouth and listen and try to figure out what's going on, because we've probably all had the experience of saying something, thinking we know what was being said, and, it, and you get to look like, well, that wasn't right. I'm, I'm off topic, right? So we're stepping in the middle of a conversation. It does us well to um, at least look really carefully before we start drawing conclusions. Another thing that happens in these letters, these letters are fascinating. Um, as parents, it never happened in our house, by the way, but I've heard this happens. Child comes to you typically in their teenage years and offers you the litany of all the things you've done wrong. All the ways you've not raised them properly. All the violations of the Geneva Convention that you committed in the upbringing of your children. And, and one of the things they throw in was, you gave me that lousy school night curfew. I don't need a school night curfew. I'm smart enough to know when I should be in bed, right? That's one of the things we often hear. And so you allow your child to vent, say all they have to say, and then you respond. Okay, now, in the process of responding, going through the whole litany of, of issues, you say, and you shouldn't have a school night curfew? Let me tell you why you have a school night curfew. All right? The other child is listening. They go to the other parent, and what do they say? Dad just said we shouldn't have a school night curfew. 
Those were his exact words. He said to Sissy, you shouldn't have a school night curfew. Is that quote accurate? Well, in a sense, yes. Is it honest? No. Why? Because Dad was quoting the argument before he responded to it. Do you think Paul might do that in the letter? You think Paul might quote something from one of these Corinthian bits of correspondence and say, you think this, but you are really messed up. No, you're wrong. We've got to pay attention. We've got to pay attention. Um, several years ago, many years ago, I had the opportunity to uh, several times listen to Dr. Gordon Fee, who is like the preeminent 20th century guy on the Corinthian letters. And he described the Corinthian letters this way. It's like playing Jeopardy. You know, you get the answers, but you got to figure out what the question was. That's a lot of what's going on. So it's a challenge. Reading these letters is a challenge. It's um, complicated. And you might ask, well, if it's complicated, why do we study? I know it's the Word of God we're supposed to study it. But why do we study this as opposed to something else? It's because it speaks so directly to who we are. These letters speak to us because, yes, a church always reflects the culture it's drawn from. And Corinth is so much like our society. The influence of materialism, the carnality, the syncretism of religious ideas, and, and the sometimes strong, extreme overreaction to those same ideas. That can show up in the church as well. So, having said all that, Corinth is a church with some serious problems. Let's get into the text. Paul begins. Paul calls an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God. Listen, if you will, for the tenor of Paul's words. To the church of God, which is in Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Does that sound like Paul's talking to a church that's really messed up? Does that sound like Paul's talking to a church that, you know, he needs to get their attention so he can slap them around a little bit and straighten them out? No. It sounds like Paul's talking to a great church. Squared away church. Look exactly what he says to this church. And they have serious problems. We're going to get into it. If you've read the letters, you know just how bad it was. First thing he says is to the church of God. Whose church is this? God's church. I get really uneasy when Christians run down to church. I mean, there are churches, yeah, they're not churches at all. They have that name, but they're not. But when I'm talking about people gathered in the name of Jesus Christ to worship Him, even if they got issues and problems and they got funky doctrine, if they're gathering to worship Jesus, we should really be careful how we talk about them. You know? Fellas, how do you react when somebody disses your wife? Well, the church is the bride of Christ. We need to be careful how we talk about the church, even ones we don't agree with, right? It's his church. To those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. What did we say last week? What defines a Christian? The indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. That's what makes us different. These people have been sanctified. The Spirit of God dwells within these people and within this church. Saints by calling. Saints by calling. Holy ones. That's what the word means. The Spirit of God dwells in this church. They are saints by His calling, which is to say they are defined by the presence of the Holy Spirit. 
and they are, by definition, directed by the presence. Now, they might not be listening like they should. They're sanctified by the presence of the Holy Spirit. He goes on to say, who with all who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Joel said, everyone that calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's how we get saved. Yeah, the doctrine's essential. Behavior counts. Habits are important. But we get saved when we call upon the name of the Lord. These folks are saved. They got issues, but they're believers. It also says something else. Hear Paul's words again. Who with all, who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord. It says something about worship. Something happens when we gather in worship and we consciously, deliberately engage in worship. There's a leveling effect. Not just within a body, but within every body of the Lord Jesus Christ. That same place at the foot of the cross we all come to. Regardless of where we may be in our growth, in our development, there's a leveling, and there is community. If you feel isolated, step into worship. Because when you step into worship, you step into community in a way that can be achieved no other way. Worship is a powerful thing. And then he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This church has got a lot of needs. They got a lot of things to be straightened out. They got doctrinal problems. They got behavioral problems. They got serious division within the church. One of their biggest problems is they had some in the church had totally rejected Paul himself. And in a deeply personal way. They got a lot of things to deal with. But what does Paul offer them before anything else? Grace and peace. Grace and peace. Now there's a couple of things there. The first is practical. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 1 says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. In a totally, one could suggest, strategic way, Paul begins by offering grace and peace because he's got some hard things to say. But you know, everything he says in this introductory section, it's all true. As messed up as this church was, it's all true. They are indeed saints of God by calling. Precious in God's sight. Precious in God's sight. Verses 4 through 7, Paul talks about the fact that the Christian believers are a gifted people. It says, verse 4, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you, that in everything you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge. Two of the major areas of problem in the Corinthian church was their mouth, things they were doing with their mouths, and their assumptions about how much they knew. Paul begins by identifying two of the major problem areas as areas of their giftedness. Because he sees that there's not just bad here, there's good here too. And that good he traces to the gifting of the Holy Spirit, the presence and power of the Spirit of God. Right? He talks about the fact they are gifted people. They're blessed people. And there's a genuine eagerness in their spiritual walk. 
He said, so that you're not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. For all your problems, we're still all looking for the same thing. Revelation, revelation of Jesus. He acknowledges that. And then he says about the Lord, who shall also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful for whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Called into fellowship with him. You know, one of the truths, as I read this, and I see the things that Paul can say to the Corinthian church, knowing how many problems they've got and all the junk that's going on there. Um, one of the truths that's most encouraging to me at a completely practical level, I'm talking about when I get discouraged, this is one of the things I think about, is, um, is the omniscience of God. The simple fact that he knows everything. And what that reminds me of as I read a letter like this, and I see the problems and the issue, and I recognize that they are made of the same cloth I am. And that I am not one bit better than they. Because in truth, I'm really not any different than they. One of the things that really encourages me is to think about the fact that God knows everything, and I know that when he saved me, he knew exactly what he was getting. No buyer's remorse on God's part. He knows the product before he takes it home. He knew what he was getting when he got me. Not that he saved me to leave me that way, but he saved me to rescue me from darkness, both present and eternal, and to change me into a child of God that would bring glory to him. And if he can do it with the Corinthians, he can do it with me. Or vice versa. That's true of everyone he calls to himself. And we all got junk, don't we? But just having junk doesn't make us garbage. We are indeed children of the living God. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, I, Father, again, we get into this letter, we're going to find ourselves sometimes just going, yuck. We look at some of the stuff that's going on in this church, we're going to want to go home and take a shower. But, Lord, that's just who we are. That's, the, that's this race that we're members of, the human race, and it's messed up, Lord, because of sin. And sin has had thousands of years to work its damage through the human race, Father. And yet we know that because of the blood that was shed on the cross on our behalf, and because of the outpouring of your Spirit by which you came to dwell within us both individually and collectively in a body, Father, we have a hope. We have a real living hope that you are in work changing us. That just as Paul said to the Corinthians, you will confirm us to the end. That we will be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that yes, God is faithful and He has called us into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's stand together and worship the Lord.